All right, please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians 1. Looking this evening in verses 12 through 20, picking up the pace a little bit as far as the number of verses that we're walking through here, title of the sermon, In Pretense or In Truth. As conservative Christians, there's a tendency and a temptation within the scope of our lives and convictions uh, to become uh, somewhat absolutist. We know that God sees in black and white and, and that we uh, often see in shades of gray that, that where we might have confusion, where we might not always know exactly what is best or exactly what is right, uh, God sees with clarity and distinction the darkness from the light. And today we step into a very unique passage, one which uh, might cause us to think a little bit about some of uh, the fundamental assumptions that we make in, as regarded as it, re as it relates to ministry, as it relates to uh, truth within this world, our relationship to the spectrum of human actions and intentions with which we interact every day. And as we begin, let's carefully recall our context. Through the first couple of sermons in Philippians, our primary focus has been upon Paul's thanksgiving for the church and their faithfulness to him over the years. These expressions of thanksgiving quickly gave way to a prayer for the church and a prayer for their leaders that they would abound in a knowledgeable love, as you might recall, by discerning the things which truly matter in order that they operate among one another in sincerity and without offense till the return of Christ. Just as Paul expresses a confidence in their labors in the Lord until Christ returns, he also expresses a desire that they would show this love until Christ returns. And all of this is they are filled with the fruits of righteousness. So then to this point, we've seen Paul express two main themes. First, this careful desire to express to the church the value of their love toward him. And then second, an urgent desire, an urgent request to God that they would live in careful and discerning balance, elevating the things which are important above those things which are not, and thus finding unity and sincerity. And Paul is going to exemplify both of these thoughts in this week and, and then also considering next week's sermon as he works towards helping the church find both comfort and understanding throughout the book regarding their own needs and the deficiencies that they might have in this regard. And Paul begins first by affirming that even in his current state, the church's investment and love toward him is still an investment in the gospel. So they have sent once and again to his needs. They're sending to his needs again. And he's assuring them that the gospel is still working and is still in effect even within his current situation. So Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that, in, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. There seems to be a twofold goal that Paul is seeking to accomplish in the manner of his presentation here. First, to comfort the hearts of the church as it relates to their true and natural concern for him personally. Naturally, he's arrested. He's under house arrest. They would be concerned about him. And he wants them to know that he's not in a place of despair. He's not in a, in a, in a bad or a sorrowful place. He has not given up on the Lord's commission upon his life to share the gospel. Uh, he is not discouraged. And that in mind and in spirit, Paul is very well. 
But notice that even in this, the focus is not upon himself, but upon the gospel and its effect where he is now. Paul deeply desires that they would understand that these things which he is going through, the suffering, the house arrest, the relative captivity under which he operates, it is yet working toward the advancement of the gospel. The work of the gospel did not cease simply because he has been arrested. And much to the contrary, Paul expresses the manifold ways by his measuring and reckoning that his current situation not only allowed the gospel to continue, but we might even say enabled a magnification of the gospel, continued uh, uh, or contributed to its furtherance, both in the region and then beyond. And his first evidence of this is very local in scope that Paul's arrest, which was exclusively on account of his, him preaching the gospel, has caused the gospel to be made manifest in the palace at Rome. And in what Paul says, all other places as well. Do recall just how important it was for Paul that he got to Rome. Just how important it was that he have this opportunity to preach the gospel in the capital of the empire. We first read of this determination in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. The Bible says, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem, and then he was determined to go to Rome. We can also see this toward the end of the letter to the Romans, that Paul speaks toward his, his fervent desire that he would be there to see them, excuse me, in person. He, he was deter so determined by this and was by no means persuaded, even when he was directly confronted. Recall that on Paul's journey back to Jerusalem for that last time, he was taking this offering to the, the church in Jerusalem. He was passing through, through Caesarea. And as he passed through Caesarea, the Bible records in Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 14, that there was a prophetic warning that if he went to Jerusalem, he would be taken, he would be arrested. And yet, and, and even in Ephesus, they begged him not to go back to Jerusalem, knowing that he was a wanted man there, but he would not be diverted. He would not be diverted from this purpose. Paul's understanding of this danger of, in Jerusalem was perhaps even the very reason why he went because through this danger he would have the means by which to get to Rome where perhaps he may not otherwise. We don't know if Paul had the means to get to Rome on his own as far as the expenses, the travel, whatever it might be. But what we find as we continue is that he's actually going to find the means by which for Rome to pay and to facilitate him getting to the, the city. And Acts 23 records this. Paul had been arrested separated by the Roman military from the angry crowds of the Jews for the sake of his own life. And in the midst of this turmoil, the Lord assures Paul that he will not die there in Jerusalem, that he must go to Rome. So we read in Acts 23, verse 11, The night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And Paul's desire having already been established, this must have been a very encouraging thing for Paul to hear. The Lord has told me I must also preach in 
Rome. And this established Paul's hope and led to his determination. So we read in Acts 24, the charges that are levied against Paul by the Jews to the Roman governor, a man named Felix, asking for him to die. Felix was unwilling to kill Paul, but he was also willing to leave Paul in prison in order to keep the goodwill of the people. So the Bible tells us in Acts 24, 27 that Paul spent two years in prison in Jerusalem where he was held but not killed, not tried. At the end of this two years, Felix was replaced by a man named Festus. Festus, hearing of Paul, appeals to King Agrippa to hear Paul's case. So Festus and Agrippa come together, and by this time Paul, who was a Roman citizen, had decided that he was not just going to make his case before Festus and Agrippa, although he did, but he had already by that point appealed to Caesar. This was a privilege, a right of a Roman citizen, by which he could appeal to be heard in the highest court of the land, which would be heard by Caesar himself. And if this appeal was granted by King Agrippa, then he would be sent to Rome in order to have this appeal heard. Interestingly enough, at the end of Acts 24, Agrippa and Festus are acknowledging that had Paul not appealed to Caesar, they probably would have let him go. But Paul did appeal to Caesar, and that was, again, fine by him because he needed to get to Rome. And so he goes to Rome through much, right? He's shipwrecked and all of these things, and yet he gets to Rome eventually where he preaches in the palace, he says, as well as in all of these places. So the final verse of Acts speak toward this end, Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. The Bible says, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and no man forbidding him. So because he was under house arrest, he had this hired house in which he lived, and he was there and people could come and go freely, he could teach freely. And he, he suffered no particular persecution. Anybody who came into the house uh, seeking unto him could be spoken of him. He was able to make his case in the palace. He was able to preach the gospel as he did in Jerusalem in the palace in Rome. He got uh, the gospel all the way into Caesar's courts. And this is the context of what Paul is saying here in verses 12 and 13. He says, understand that the things that have fallen out, the things that have happened to me over these last few years, the things that I've been, uh, I've been going through, they have fallen out unto the furtherance of the gospel. In the palace and in all other places, the gospel is being shared through these circumstances. And this is, this is what Paul is talking about here from Acts chapter 28. And Paul tells the church, beginning in verse 14, that his arrest and imprisonment and the gospel's influence through it went well beyond just him. So he says in verse 14, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident in my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul tells the church that not only his own ministry has been maintained so that people are coming and asking him things and he's answering questions and sharing the gospel and then he's standing before leaders and he's, he's sharing the gospel as he tells them why it is that he's under arrest. But also he says many other believers hearing of his bonds, perhaps seeing his faithfulness even in his bonds, have been emboldened by his testimony and obedience to themselves, speak the word without fear. Paul's courage emboldened others. 
Perhaps Paul's suffering also emboldened others. So that it might even be that though Paul was captive and very limited in his own uh, efforts, the degree to which his captivity emboldened the brethren around the world may very well have amplified the power of the gospel around the world. That old saying says that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. It is not uncommon that when there is somebody that's willing to stand in the gap, somebody that's willing to stand up and do what's right, somebody that's willing to step up and, and take that step of faith and do something for the Lord, that others will look and they, everyone's just been waiting for somebody to step up. Maybe you've seen this among your friends. I recall this quite often growing up in my public school environment where there would just need to be one person to speak up for the Lord, for what is right. I remember being in several different classes, a speech class where I got to give a speech about my faith, um, an English class where I got to write some things about my faith, a psychology class where I got to write some things about my faith. And the opportunity, when the opportunity arose to say something that would reflect a matter of biblical truth, whether it was I who said it or one of the other Christians that, that, that was in the class, he, a, a friend of mine who I would speak to about these things and myself, anytime we would speak up for the gospel or speak up for the truth, we would always have someone come up to us and say, thanks for saying that. That, that encourages me. That helps me be bold. That helps me, gives me courage to be able to say such things myself. Perhaps you've experienced that before where you've stood up for what is right. You've said something when no one else will say something. You've done what's right when no one else was doing what was right. And it emboldened others to follow you. It's as if they were just waiting for someone to do what was right. Well, Paul was suffering. Paul was emboldened to preach the gospel. And this emboldened others. We've seen such things among missionaries as well. We've seen such things among ministers. I think of William Bolden, if you've ever heard of William Bolden. Born to a wealthy Chicago family in 1887, converted under the preaching of R.A. Torrey in Chicago. To this end, after being converted, building a burden for ministry, deciding that he was going to go into ministry, he was from a very wealthy family, he renounced all of that wealth, he renounced the family business so that he could go and train for the ministry. William Borden ended up at Yale and then Princeton Seminary, training for the ministry. History tells us that while there, he, through his zeal and through his love, sparked revivals on campus. His professors would even speak to the fact that he was such a uniquely consecrated and mature individual that his professors would, would acknowledge that they learned as much from him as he would learn from them because of his passion for the Lord. At the age of 25, he felt the call to go to China to reach the Muslims in China. Obviously, this was before the great cultural revolution in China and the purge, the communist purge, well before that. And before going to reach the Muslims in China, he stopped in Egypt at age 25 to learn Islam. Not too long after he got to Egypt, history tells us that he contracted an illness now we know to be cerebral meningitis. It was irrecoverable, and a few weeks later, at age 25, he died. Borden never made it to the field 
but his love for the Lord and his zeal that he had shown at Yale and at Princeton. The consecrated nature of his love for the Lord. The, the, even the elevated nature of him being a, from a very wealthy American family sent shockwaves through the American public. He was in the front page of every newspaper in America that he had died at age 25 in Egypt. And the testimony of him having renounced his, his wealth to go to the mission field and to win the loss for Christ and the whole country heard about it and thousands of young men and women were inspired by Borden just to get, go into the ministry and to spread the gospel. Though his ministry may have been short-lived, though his effect individually may have been somewhat encapsulated, his boldness inspired thousands. We might think as well of Jim Elliot, born in 1927, saved at an early age, from very early on showing a passion to share the gospel. He felt the call to reach the unreached peoples while he was serving on a missions trip in Mexico at age 20 in 1947. Five years later, he went to Ecuador along with his wife Elizabeth where he and his partners in ministry, several men with their families, were determined to reach the Aka Indians, the Wayadoni tribe a tribe of extremely violent people, so violent, in fact, that there existed in their village no old men or women at all. The life expectancy was in the 30s because they would kill each other before anyone could get old. It was just expected that you were going to be stabbed in the back by someone in your village at some point for the things that you had. Violent, violent tribe. They begin the very slow and tedious process of seeking to reach out to these people flying a plane, dropping leaflets, dropping presents, dropping uh, 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 things to extend and show their goodwill. Until finally this climaxed in January of 1956 with a face-to-face -face meeting. At this meeting, the five men who went there on that day were ambushed by ten of the Wadoni tribe and they were all slain. Jim was 29 years old. News of the death of Jim Elliott and his companions shot through the Western world, and as with Borden, so too with them, inspired thousands to yield their lives to the ministry of the gospel, still inspiring many to this day. Jim's well-known diary entry, written eight years before his death when he was 21 years old, I've quoted it several times from behind this pulpit, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And it is this spirit which Paul speaks to here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. When we serve Christ with clarity, when we serve Christ with passion, when we serve Christ with fervor, there is no loss. There is no foolishness. There is no waste. Paul's time in prison was not a waste because through his time, through his suffering, through whatever he may have been going through, it was emboldening other believers to share the gospel. And that fervor and that passion, that boldness carried the gospel further than it, he ever could have himself. But then things get really interesting. As Paul continues to relay 
his expressions of joy and thanksgiving in verses 15 through 17. He says, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Paul presents the boldness unto which he has inspired others within two contexts. First, he says, I've emboldened my enemies to preach the gospel of envy and strife, not preach it sincerely, but rather hoping that as they express what Paul is saying, it will make things worse for Paul. And then he says, then there are those who are preaching out of love and goodwill, emboldened by Paul's courage and seeking to support him through their own efforts and sacrifices. And to this end, Paul would conclude in verse 18, he says, what then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense, that would be those preaching of envy and strife, or in truth, that would be those who are emboldened to preach the gospel of the believers, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul says that for whatever reason the gospel is being preached, either as a pretense for him being further persecuted, or in truth and love for the gospel itself, he, at least Christ is being preached. And he says, I will rejoice in this. I do rejoice in this. Now, this concept is worthy of us slowing down and thinking about. What does Paul mean by this? Is Paul assuming upon himself a measure of pragmatic ends justifies the means philosophy here? Whereby he doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to him how the gospel gets out as long as the gospel gets out. I don't think that's what he's saying. And let me explain to you why. First, consider the scenario that Paul is putting forth here. He's not giving a scenario whereby men are ministering in the name of the Lord, but using evil, sin, or compromise to attract people to the gospel. He's not preaching that people are preaching the gospel, but they are using some sort of false um, or, or evil means by which He's not talking about a health and wealth church or a seeker-friendly church idea here. To much to the contrary, we might liken what Paul is describing today to the political environment that we have. For the last three and a half years, the media has been singularly focused on every little thing that President Trump has done, right? And well better than 90%. Most people say well better than 95% of that coverage, according to watchdog groups, has been negative. But here's the thing. Even though this press is negative, it's still press, isn't it? Even though the press is negative, it still puts President Trump's policies and proposals on the front page of newspapers, doesn't it? It gets people curious. It gets people talking. And through it, President Trump gets free advertisement. But the press presents his proposals and actions as if they're bad. However, they're still pre presenting his proposals and his actions, right? And any number of Americans are looking at what he's doing, many fewer, I think, at what he's saying, and thinking to themselves, there's some good things happening here. Sure, I don't like him, but there's some good things happening here. Now, this is not how he would want to be portrayed, is it, if he had the choice? But regardless, he's in people's heads. He's occupying their mind space because of all the people that desire his downfall 
and won't allow him to just be invisible. The best thing that the media could do for themselves would be to simply ignore him, but they can't do that. And so he's on the forefront of people's minds. If I can liken that to what Paul is saying here, he's not saying, oh, good people are perverting the gospel or they're perverting ministry for the sake of the gospel. He's saying, my enemies are going about telling people what I'm preaching. And they're telling people what I'm preaching, hoping that it will add to my persecution. So uh, uh, a senator is going into the courts and he's saying, Paul is telling people that you must be born again. Paul is telling people that there is this Savior uh, named Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and who was buried and who rose again the third day. And he's saying this as if he, uh, in order to cause more persecution, in order to make an argument for Paul to be silenced, in order to make an argument for Paul to be destroyed. But you know what's happening? The gospel is being heard. In order to tell people why it is Paul needs to be persecuted, they have to tell people what Paul has been saying. And so the gospel as, is being heard, hoping that it will make people hate Paul more. Well, here's the thing. That means the gospel has been spreading by his detractors. And Paul says, I can live with that. They want to go around telling people what I've been telling them so that they can Persecute me, that's fine, as long as they're telling people what I'm saying. As long as they're telling people that gospel that I've relayed to them for pretense purposes, that's fine. So when we consider the scenario itself, it has nothing to do with a compromised gospel or a pragmatic gospel, only with the source by which the gospel is being spread. Now, second, when we see Paul's other actions, when we read his other statements, we know that Paul is not supportive of the gospel being preached from compromised sources or unto pragmatic ends. In other words, Paul, we have a track record of Paul not being comfortable with truth being spoken, uh, being falsely represented or being spoken, uh, as, uh, sourced in evil people as if those evil people ought to have some bearing on the truth. What I mean by this is when a person claims to have some measure of religious authority, Paul has never been okay with a perverted religious authority even speaking truth. We consider back in Acts 16, Paul's time, in fact, in Philippi. When he was in Philippi, the first time, Paul and Silas had entered Philippi with Timothy and they met Lydia and she was believed and baptized. And then we read this in verses 16 through 18. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by Sue's saying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. So we read in this historical account of a woman in Philippi possessed with a spirit of divination. She follows Paul and she follows the company of Paul around saying something that is entirely true, right? These men are the servants of the Most High God which show us the way of salvation. And this is interesting. Paul does not smile here and say, well, at least the truth is being spoken, right? Whether in pretense or in truth. He doesn't say that here. He doesn't say, 
well, at least the, the gospel or at least the truth is getting out regardless of the source. Because that's not what he's speaking about in Philippians 1. This woman was a servant of evil. This woman was rec uh, representing a religious system, a spiritual system that was directly contrary to truth, that was in competition with the truths of sound doctrine. She was saying something true, but by associating herself with the message in any way was doing damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no benefit to a heretic or an apostate or a false teacher espousing some good things. We see this through televangelists. We see this quite often, right? You have a man who says some good things, but by and large, his ministry is false. And those good things are sufficient to draw people in and draw people into his error. This is not what Paul was okay with. This is not the, a pragmatic idea here where Paul says, well, it doesn't matter who's saying it. It doesn't matter what they represent as long as the gospel's getting out. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, okay, if these people, these enemies of the gospel, want to tell people what the gospel says in order to get me persecuted, okay. And if my brethren, the believers, are emboldened to preach the gospel, praise the Lord for that. He's not saying that people like this woman with the spirit of divination saying something true, that that is, is okay. That, that, that he would condone that. So Paul spread, uh, cast the, the evil spirit out of this woman because she was reducing the credibility of the gospel. And it departed the same hour. And we see from Paul's own example then that he didn't rejoice in the idea that those who are compromised or evil would lock themselves in with truth. Likewise, Paul in Romans directly repudiates the idea that Christians follow a pragmatic ends-justify-the-means type of ministry. He said in Romans chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. So he's giving a, a carnal scenario here. God forbid, he says, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Within this context, Paul is playing what we call a devil's advocate position. I, uh, the, the, the term devil's advocate was actually derived from the Roman Catholic Church. What they would do is when they were considering someone for sainthood, they would have all of the people that would espouse all of the reasons why this person was worthy of sainthood, but they would always appoint from among their ministers a devil's advocate, someone whose job it was to counter every point with some reason why they should not be sainted. They should not receive sainthood. And that was an official position, regardless of how much that person respected the person that was being up for sainthood, that was an official position as a means by which to uncover any flaw that might legitimately be a reason why they should not be up for sainthood. Now, naturally, the whole, whole process was silly, but that's where we get this idea of the devil's advocate, right? The person who is appointed to, um, to 
counteract an opinion in order to cause us to think or in order for us to be able to root out any inconsistencies or errors in our thinking. So Paul is playing sort of a devil's advocate position in Romans chapter 3. He speaks out of reason rather than faith. He says, I speak as a man. When he says, I speak as a man, what he means is that he's speaking uh, from a carnal rationality rather than a spiritual rationality. And he reasons this. If God is glorified in unrighteous men, because when an unrighteous man stands in contrast with the righteous God, it simply elevates the righteousness of God because of the unrighteousness of a man. If this is the case, that God's righteousness is actually magnified in my unrighteousness, well, then the more unrighteous I am, the more I'm technically magnifying God's glory, right? I'm glorifying God more through my unrighteousness because my, the depths of my unrighteousness magnify the heights of God's righteousness. So then I should just be as unrighteous as I can be, right? Because in being deeply unrighteous, I magnify God's righteousness all the more. And if that is the case, then by being unrighteous, I'm actually glorifying God, which means God has no right to judge me in my unrighteousness for doing that which glorifies him. And thus, the ends of God's glorification justifies the means of that end, which is my unrighteousness. My unrighteousness is justified by the end of that, which is God's glory. And Paul says this is malarkey, to translate the Greek loosely. He says that's not how this works. He says, some may slanderously report and affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. But that's not at all what we're saying here. So once again, Paul debunks the idea. He he's, uh, debunks the idea that he has a pragmatic ends justifies the means philosophy in his ministry. And to that end, we recognize here that this is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying, well, the ends justify the means. I don't care how the gospel is preached as long as the gospel is preached. That's not what Paul is saying. We know that because when truth was being spoken at the mouth of a, spirit, uh, of a woman taken with a spirit of divination, he was grieved and he cast out that spirit. We know because Paul directly affirms that he does not carry and ends justifies the means philosophy into his ministry. To that end then, much to the contrary, Paul calls for the church to rebuke and to turn away from these things, doesn't he? Throughout all of Paul's ministry, he rejoices in sound doctrine and he calls the church to identify those who are not walking according to sound doctrine, to identify false teachers and to depart from them, to withdraw from them. So in chapter 1, verses 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, Paul is not drawing a distinction between a false teacher and a true teacher. He's not saying, I don't care if, if they're a false teacher or a true teacher as long as they're teaching the gospel. That is not Paul's context. He's not saying that he rejoices in both a true, sound doctrinal teaching and a compromised teaching as long as the gospel is there. Much to the rather, the contrast is between a believer who is emboldened to speak the truth and an unbeliever someone who is entirely not associated with the gospel, someone who doesn't love the gospel, someone who hates the gospel even, but who is compelled to share the contents of the gospel in order to see Paul persecuted, Paul's enemies 
And this is a very, very important distinction to make. Because some might read Paul's words here and think, well, in consistency with Paul's philosophy, I should be happy, no matter who's sharing the gospel, that the gospel might get out in some way, shape, or form. Be happy to rejoice in that um, compromised gospel, at that compromised environment, that Christian rock concert, or that ecumenical gathering. Because as long as Christ is preached, the rest of it is just water under the bridge. That's not what Paul is saying, and that is not, by the testimony of so much of the Scripture, at all what our mindset ought to be. Paul devotes much of the New Testament to repudiating that very idea, doesn't he? So does Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. So does Jude, in the book of Jude. Please don't get me wrong. We have people in our church who were saved at Christian rock concerts. We have people who were saved and early discipled under ministries where people were not very faithful to the scriptures. We'll talk more about that in our application. But we need to be very careful that we don't reject what God can do in the hearts of God's people or in the hearts of a person because of the source he uses. But that does not mean that we ought to. There's a big difference between recognizing that God can use anyone to manifest his truths and affirming those that walk in error simply because God has used them. May I say that again? There is a big difference in recognizing that God can use anything to spread his truth and affirming those who are walking in error simply because God has used them in some truth capacity. And that's not what Paul is doing here. Nowhere in scriptures do we find such a philosophy espoused. And we see this become all the more evident as Paul continues. He says in verses 19 and 20, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. So Paul has already told us one reason why he's able to rejoice so confidently, both in the preaching of the gospel by pretense and the preaching of the gospel by believers in obedience, is because the gospel is preached. But he says there's another thing here. There's another good thing about this here. He says that as this progresses, either way, he says, through your prayers and through the, the deliverance or, or, or through the, the, the faithfulness of the gospel getting out, my salvation has to come one way or another. If the gospel is boldly preached by the believers and enough people receive it that my gospel preaching becomes acceptable, then I'm out of here. Half the city gets saved, and you know what? Paul's probably not going to be in prison for very long for preaching the gospel. He says, on the other hand, if my enemies keep telling people the gospel, and that's making more and more people angry, and everyone is getting so angry at my preaching of the gospel that they're ready to silence me, then they put me to death, and then I'm, 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 I'm saved too, right? I'm delivered from this as well. So one way or another, he says, whether it be by life or by death, my salvation is coming. My deliverance is coming. If his enemies prevail, preaching the gospel in pretense and stirring up authorities against him, he'll be killed and delivered into glory. If his friends prevail, preaching the gospel in truth and convincing the naysayers, he will live and be released. One way or another, something is going to give, and Paul says, I'm good with it. 
We'll talk more about that next week. Either way, he will be delivered from his circumstances. He will not be ashamed. He will have kept the faith. He will have maintained his boldness. Christ will be glorified in life or in death. Now, next week, we're going to consider those two possibilities more deeply as Paul considers his desire to depart, but his feeling of needfulness that he remain. And we'll talk about that conflict next week. But for today, we're going to apply. I have three points of application in our time together this evening. Point number one, you aren't the only one who struggles with boldness to share the gospel. This is a bit of a pretentious point, but I think that it's probably going to land on, on some, uh, some ears that can receive this point with gladness. Everyone thinks they're the only one who struggles with the idea of sharing the gospel with boldness. Being willing to say what needs to be said to those that need to hear it. Risking being mocked, alienating a loved one, losing a material opportunity. And what you need to remember is that you aren't alone. You aren't alone. To whatever degree you struggle with a boldness to share the gospel, you're not alone in that struggle. But may I also say this? You also need to remember that it's not an excuse. We spent some time in Sunday school not too long ago helping each other think through some of these things. We need to remember that not everyone in the body is called into the same function. And that to impose my function, my understanding, my gifts, my abilities on another is to do disservice to the body. So Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 21, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So we do not share the same gifts and the functions, do we, in the body? I hope that among those who are here this evening, among those who are a part of our, our, our broader uh, uh, crowd, that we're not all the same in Christ that we are not all the same function of the body or else we are going to be a very limited body. We do a disservice if we attempt to make all the body hands or all of the body feet or all of the body eyes. If I look at you and say, because you don't have the gifts I don't have, there's something wrong with you spiritually. For the hand to say, because you don't have opposable thumbs, feet. You can't function in the body. Would be silly. Because the feet are feet and the hands are hands. For the eye to say to the nose, well, because you can't see, you're, there's something wrong with you. Because you're not doing what I can do. Because you're not functioning in the way that I'm strengthened and designed to function. There's something wrong with you. Would be silly. Because the nose is for smelling, and the eye is for seeing. 
and the mouth is for speaking and tasting, and the ears are for hearing. In fact, in our deeply divided church culture today, there's already strong inclination for similar body parts to congregate together. Perhaps even unintentionally, by doing this, we make those who function in a different manner feel uncomfortable, maybe even unwelcome in our midst. I, it's one of my running theories that the church today has been largely divided by body parts. That the body parts tend to congregate together because we understand each other. And so you'll get a church of feet. And they're really good at getting out there and sharing the gospel. But they don't have the ears to hear. They don't have the eyes to see. They don't have the hands to reach out. Or you'll get a church of hands. And everyone's really good at reaching out and, 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 and serving and loving and, and, and supporting. But there's no feet. There's no one out there sharing the gospel. There's no eyes. There's no one out there with that discernment, discerning the times. We tend to congregate together by body part. My theory. It's just a theory. But what we need to understand is that not everyone is called to the same manner and methods of ministry. What might be natural and effective to one person might be extremely ineffective for another based upon gifts and abilities. If you were to, if you and I were to job swap for a couple of weeks, we would both become significantly less efficient, wouldn't we? You've been trained and gifted for your particular work. I've been trained and gifted for my particular work. For you to take on my work, you might be able to do it, but you would not do it as well because you've not been trained and gifted for it. For me to take on your work, I might be able to do it, but not as well, not as efficiently, because I'm not trained and gifted for your work. When we are where we are trained and gifted, that is where we are effective. Not just in the physical, but in the spiritual. And that's okay. But while we are many different members, we are all one body, aren't we? And as members of one body, we do all share the same commission from our Lord. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. No one is exempt from that commission. In a military, you have any number of moving parts. If Congress signs a declaration of war and commits resources to that war, there is, within the scope of a functional government, a singular purpose to that war. Win. Now, within that is going to be many, many, many different sub-tasks. Individual battles, individual parts to that battles, and individual roles to play. You have the soldier. You have the mechanic. You have the supply line. You have requisitions. You have leadership. You have strategy. You have so many different parts. Now, if you got, if all the frontline soldiers got together and they went back to the supply line and said, how dare you be back here on the supply line? Get out to those front lines. This is where the action is. So everyone goes out to the front lines until they run out of everything because the supply line's no longer functioning. And the supply line's no longer functioning because all the guys that are trained for the supply line are in the front fighting. <laughs> 
And if you go to the generals and you say, generals, what are you doing sitting up here in your office planning? Get on those front lines. Get out there and fight. So all the generals go out and fight, and now nobody knows where they're going or what they're doing because they don't have leadership anymore because the people that are supposed to be in that room looking at the whole thing, looking at the big picture, and directing people where they need to go aren't there doing their job because they've been commissioned to do something that is not theirs to do. We each have a role to play. And some of you are blessed with the ability to converse easily, to make friends readily. And this is a tremendous asset in sharing the gospel with others. And you can walk up to people and you can make them feel comfortable and present the gospel in a manner that is clear and inviting. And so you have a gift that you can use for the Lord. Some of you are blessed with hospitality and you can make a good meal and you can make people feel very comfortable in your home and you can invite them to your home and you can have a good meal and you can spend a few minutes before or after that meal talking them through a gospel tract or sitting them down and asking them about their religious background. Some of you are blessed with a natural bold temperament by which you're inclined for confrontational evangelism, going up to someone on the street and just saying, let's talk for a few minutes. Some of you are blessed with the ability to teach so that you can go into a teaching environment and you can reason the gospel. Some of you are blessed with counsel and you have friends that are coming to you for advice and you can sit down and you can counsel with them and reason with them out of the scriptures. Some of you are blessed with experience where you can go to places and you can share the benefits of the experiences that you've had in your life and help people understand how God has helped you through those experiences. Some of you are blessed with a faithful testimony, ready always to give an answer to the hope that lieth within you. And then we have all of the other elements of this as well. Some of you are prayers. And you can be there on your knees while we're at the Good News Club on Wednesday. And you can have a legitimate and powerful effect on the things that happen in that hour and a half period by your prayers. Some of you are givers. And as Paul is thanking the Lord for here in Philippians, that the church in Philippi, this wasn't the only thing they were doing, but they were giving once and again to his need to facilitate the gospel around the world. You can do that. So you do that. All of the different ways, all the while, each of us reaching out, doing our part, functioning in the body. Maybe you're the supply line. Maybe you're the general. Maybe you're the foot soldier. But you have a part to play in this system of the gospel. But make no mistake, what you and I don't have the right to do is to do nothing. Death is too final. Separation from God is too eternal. The lake of fire is too hot for us to do nothing. If you don't have confidence to share the gospel, we can solve that. Let's get you confident. If you don't have an outlet for ministry, we can solve that one too. Let's find an outlet for you. If you aren't doing something now, start praying and asking the Lord what can be done. And then start working toward that goal. If you need more training, start working toward that goal. But do know this, you aren't the only one who struggles with boldness to share the gospel. But God's grace is more than able 
to make up that difference. So let's get busy. Be sure you're doing something. First, you aren't the only one who struggles with a boldness to share the gospel. Second, your boldness not only reaches the lost, it also emboldens the brethren. As I exhort you unto the work, it's not just about reaching the lost. It also relates to the saved. Courage spreads. Encouragement spreads. Parents, we know that our diligence in our families is not just about doing what's best for our families, is it? Our diligence in the family is also about showing our children an example of what it means to be responsible, to work hard, to have courage. If I don't want my children to be lazy, then I need to show them work ethic. If I want my children to have integrity, to speak the truth, then I better speak the truth to them. I better have integrity with them. It's not just about my family functioning well. It's about me being a good example. So too in the church. Your faithfulness is not just about you. It's about everyone who might just be waiting for an example of ministry. So everyone who might just be waiting for someone to step out and to do something. About the boldness that spreads when one of God's people allows God to work in unique ways. I spoke to you a while ago about William Borden. Died at 25 years old. Inspired an entire generation of missionaries to the field. It was not only his death that was an inspiration. I talked to you about this revival at Yale. In his first semester at Yale, Borden began a prayer group. He began it with two other men, three of them praying together. But his faithfulness and his love for the Lord, his boldness and his willingness to speak out, his determination to reach out to his fellow students, to win them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to encourage them to do right, even among his teachers, was infectious. So much so that by the end of his first year, his freshman year, there were 150 freshmen that were meeting weekly for prayer and Bible study. By his senior year, by his fourth year there at Yale, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting weekly for prayer and Bible study. Borden also had, an, had a habit of pursuing the hard-hearted. They would assign every... Uh, to every student within their prayer group, they would assign a student who was not in the prayer group to reach out to them at the school. And whenever they'd come across someone that was really hard-hearted and they'd look and say, who wants this one? Borden would say, I want that one. And he'd be there and he'd do the work. Outside of class hours, Borden would often be found in the city rescuing drunks from the streets of New Haven. He founded a mission called the Yale Hope Mission to help the needy during these four years when he was supposed to just be studying. He would often be found at night on the streets offering lodging and warm meals to homeless people, all seeking to lead men to Christ. And he died at age 25, and we say, wow, what a loss for the kingdom of God. What might Borden have done if he'd have made it to China to reach those Muslims? But consider what God has done with him because he died. Now, I'm not hoping you die. That's not, that's not what this point is about. Trust me. But what might God do in the hearts of others through your boldness? What might your boldness do for this church? What might your example do for your family?
What might it enliven in your siblings, in your children, in your church? Final point. Ends do not justify the means, but good ends are still worthy of rejoicing. We established already and established well the fact that ends do not justify the means. There is no scenario by which compromise or sin is justified in order to bring about some righteous end. This has been the great battle of the church, particularly in the past 100, 150 years, where one side believes that to compromise with the world and to use the world's methods to reach the world and to use the world's allures to reach the world is the only way we're going to reach the world. And then the other side believes that our distinction from the world, the very fact that our methods are different, the very fact that we've forsaken the world's allures, that it is this power and this strength as the very foundation that is the root of our effectiveness. This morning's message, as well as the track record of our church, leaves no doubt where we stand with this. We stand for separation. We stand for distinction. And we stand here because the Bible stands there. We stand there because the apostles stood there. We stand there because the things of this world pass away, but the things of the Lord endure forever. So as we considered this morning, we flee the world's affections and lusts. We follow after righteousness. We fight the good fight of faith, and we lay hold on eternal life. But let us also be careful to acknowledge that while there is only one road to the Father, only one road to eternal life, and that road is the road of the finished work of Jesus Christ, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, yet the paths to finding Christ are as different as they are manifold. Let us hold our ground against the compromise that has filled our churches, but nonetheless be able to rejoice that in spite of that compromise, there are souls that are coming into the kingdom. Not to support those ministries and what they're doing in any way, we let us not abide the ecumenicism that would seek to erode our distinctives, but still thank God that God can work in spite of these errors to bring men unto himself. And let us be careful that we do not hold such a dislike or rejection of the methods of ministry or the institutions. We're not so rigid in our demands of purity that we cannot see our way to practically appreciate when it is that God is able to work through flawed men. I had somebody write me not too long ago and ask me some questions about our church. And one of the questions he asked was about Martin Luther. They've not since visited the church, so I'm assuming my answers were bad. But he asked the question, what do you think of Martin Luther? And my response was something to this effect. The man had many, many theological and personal problems. The man obviously was a fierce anti-Semite. The man did not come out of the Catholic Church. He never even intended to come out of the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church, hence the term Reformation. He had many, many issues in his theology. He had many, many issues in his personal life. And I would by no means uh, encourage God's people to use him as a strong resource for their own theological development. But he tacked those 95 theses on that door and it turned the world upside down for Christ. That wasn't the only thing, but it started something big. And would to God that I could have just 10% of the effect in my ministry that he had in his. Maybe not in the same ways. 
can I appreciate what happened through that man, though he be flawed? If I cannot, then God help me. Because you know what? I'm pretty flawed too. Say, well, pastor, that's overly simplistic. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But I like to rejoice that God can use very flawed men because I want to believe that God can use me. God can even use evil men, can he not? Did God not use Cyrus in his day, though Cyrus never claimed an affinity for, for God as Nebuchadnezzar had before him? Did God not use Nebuchadnezzar while Nebuchadnezzar was still in his rebellion and still in, in, in a pagan evil state? Is God not using the evil of this world unto his purposes? Has God, did God not use the terrible, evil, genocidal attempt of the Holocaust to bring about enough sympathy on the world stage for Israel to exist again? If God can use evil, God can certainly use men who, who, who are flawed. And while we don't want to be flawed, and again, this is no excuse to be flawed, can we still rejoice even when there are flaws in the work that God can do? It's a strange passage we studied today. And it will continue to get interesting as we consider next week. Before today, may I exhort you unto this end, that you be bold, willing to share the gospel. Find your strength. Find your place in the body. Pursue that with excellence. Grow. Learn. Reach out. Share the gospel. Rejoice in the Lord's work. Maintain purity. Do the work. Be faithful, love one another, and let us reach the world for Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.